Hi everyone, I'm Michael Frazes and this is Frazes Capital Podcast. In this episode, I have a chat with Anna Saturis and we discuss Carvana, Disney's new streaming option and our views on markets and the ways we're looking to protect our portfolio. I hope you enjoy. Hi Michael, how are you? Good thanks Anna, how are you? Really, really well. So tell me, Michael, there's been quite a strong rally this year. What happens next? I guess nobody really knows what actually happens next, but it has been a strong rally. I mean, most markets are up 20% or more from their lows at the end of December. And it's been an interesting rally because most people have missed it. So if you look at where fund managers or active fund managers have been positioning, they've really been short or underweight the entire time. So if anything, that kind of gives the rally legs. People haven't actually piled in in the way that you might expect you know, after a rally like that. And usually it's that kind of exuberance that marks tops. But this might be a different case because there's still that broad level of negativity. Things are still kind of rolling over. You know, trade volumes are down significantly over the last few months. And we're actually pretty far into 2019 now. You know, we're in May. So it's not really, if things are deteriorating, it's not because there was a hit to markets in December. It's because things are actually going wrong. And you're still kind of seeing those things. And even though these data points have come out, you know, PMI is going down, trade volumes in particular, markets will continue to rally. So at some point that will probably stop. Could even be quite soon as well. I mean, there's obviously been an IPO boom in the US, which is super interesting. There's like Lyft, which is fell a lot. Zoom, which rose a lot. Uh, it's a brilliant company. Beyond Meat, have you, have you heard of that? No, no, I haven't. Do you, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you can actually buy it in Australia now, apparently. I haven't bought it yet. The stock or the meat. <laughs> <laughs> but they put it in... Um, they put it in the meat section and basically everybody is everybody just loves it in the States, like proper meat eaters. Okay. So I was a vegetarian for about three and a half years for ethical reasons. And I tried pretty much every substitute I could find and they were all horrible. Like in England, they have this thing called corn spelt with a Q. I think, think you can get it here as well, but it's not such a big deal. It's basically fungus that they grow in vats and then like mold into it into sausages and chicken fillets and things. Okay, so this is a meat substitute. Yeah, so selling. these guys are made out okay. of pea protein. It tastes delicious. They put beetroot juice in it. So when you bite into your burger, it like is all bloody and all the things that kind of was. Okay, we might like. need to try some tonight, I think. Yeah, we should try it. <laughs> um, the stock's probably run away from us. <laughs> it went up 165% its first day. Right. But the reason I find these things interesting is IPO booms are always marked tops because basically that's when everything's really exuberant. And also I think there's actually a causal effect. So if you think about equity traders, we all trade with each other. It's zero sum. The equity investors are constantly swapping shares with each other. You know, that doesn't really affect things. What does actually move markets is when cash from outside goes in or goes out. So an example of that, an example of cash will be going out would be an equity investor gets a dividend that comes out of the real economy. So the money comes into the company and then to the shareholders and then typically investors who will then invest that in stocks. Another way that will happen is if private equity buys out a company. So then you've got all these pools of private capital and then that money buys the company, goes into the pockets of the equity investors and then that's like extra money for the zero-sum equity investors to trade with each other. The opposite of that is IPO booms. So when there's an IPO, basically everybody, all the equity investors have to sell their other shares, put cash into the IPO and that cash is effectively sucked out of the market. It's not zero sum amongst investors. So often it really takes the heat off. For example, if Uber, which is shortly going to IPO, and I've always had it like as a guess that that's going to be the top of the market. So they're raising about $8 billion, and that's $8 billion that comes out of everybody's portfolios and goes into Uber shareholders who will then spend it on whatever it is that they do. There's been so, there's many examples of this. One that I missed uh, was last year when there was a big IPO 
booming biotech. So we had some outstanding performers in our portfolio then. And they're still up. You know, these are companies that, you know, tripled or more. But in late last year, they went down 40 or 50%. So they're still well up on our purchase price, um, but, you know, very nasty volatility. And basically one of the triggers, like looking at, with the benefit of hindsight, is that there was a huge IPO boom in the first part of 2018. Lots of companies IPOing with, they call it, instead of a, a pipeline, a hypeline. So these are things that are like pre-clinical data, getting hundreds of millions of dollars, $100 million valuations, and even uh, in excess of a billion dollars with no kind of late, later stage drugs. So when you see that kind of exuberance, firstly, it means that you know, sentiment is particularly high, so it's likely to change at some point. And also there's a causative effect in the sense that all the kind of very bullish people kind of put money into these IPOs, which then gets taken off the table for everybody else. It's very interesting to see that happening now. Actually, the other classic example was the tech bubble, you know, end of the 90s, kind of beginning of 2000. That, the top of that marked, the top of that was, you know, the top peak IPOs where a huge number of companies came to market. And within a month, that was the top and everything kind of turned down for the next two years. So it's very interesting to see these companies, many of which, you know, aren't particularly spectacularly profitable businesses and had very, very high valuations by any metrics. And you know that I'm very happy to buy a business that's creating value, but not necessarily generating profits. I think often the best businesses are the ones that, or actually I do believe the best businesses are the ones that actually can invest the money they're making. Um, and typically that means they're operating at losses, but they're growing, you know, they're investing in value creative activities. So I'm like very open to the idea that something can be losing money and be worth a lot and be worth even more next year if it's losing money because it's investing. But even so, it's pretty hard to justify, you know, list valuation. I mean, these are companies that are losing a ton of money and they're not even growing very fast anymore. So I do think that's, you know, we're at a very, very risky point at the moment, especially as these IPOs kind of finish and come onto market. And I guess even now, so we are, it is, what day is it? Wednesday. Thursday. Thursday. <laughs> uh, so it's Thursday, and you know, earlier this week, Trump had those issues. So you read read about that in the yes. news? Yes, I wanted to ask you about Trump. So he threatened to raise tariffs on Chinese goods from ten percent to twenty five percent. Do you think this might affect the Fraser's Capital portfolio? Or uh, well, I guess we're in a fortunate position because we've gone up quite a lot this year. You know, everything's performed very well. So the way we operate in these kind of situations is as markets rise, steadily increase our short positions. So for example, and I think we found some pretty interesting ways of doing it. Maybe we'll talk about that and we'll talk about Trump. So basically we have, you know, a coal company trading at two times, does metallurgical coal. So that's coal used in steel. On the other side of that, we've sold short an ETF that's stuffed full of highly leveraged thermal coal players. So this is coal used burn for energy. You know, thermal coal has like two very strong headwinds. Like the first one is that investors are selling it. So huge funds, you know, even Norway's fund, which is a bit odd, seeing as they made all their money from oil. But, you know, they're kind of saying they're going to divest all their investments uh, that are not clean energy. So that's one big headwind for the stocks. The second big headwind is that whole countries are saying, we just don't want this as part of our energy mix anymore. And there's plenty of coal in the world, you know. So those two things suggest that that thermal coal is structurally flawed. The whole thing, the price collapsed in 2016. It's recovered. It's very much on the way back down now. But metallurgical coal doesn't have those problems. So it's mixed with iron ore to make steel, basically. And it's kind of irrelevant. There's no real substitute for that. So you don't need to worry about, you know, those environmental concerns in the same way. So it's just a way we've isolated it. We've done that with other, you know, one of our best players is probably retail. 
So we're long Amazon, we're long Carvana, which just reported. Maybe we could talk about that as well. Yeah, let's talk about yeah. Carvana. Well, basically, I'll just say we're long these very fast, incredibly high-quality companies. We're also short a retail ETF, which is full of, you know, department stores, you know, like physical retail, companies with a lot of debt. The index as a, as a whole is actually has negative revenue growth, so it's shrinking. And when you see shrinking companies with high debt loads, that's typically where you see a lot of equity value destruction. And the most interesting thing, which I think very few people kind of look at these kinds of things, is the way the ETF is structured is it's equal weighted, which means it's constantly selling its winners and buying the losers. So for example, Carvana, which we obviously talk about a lot and wrote about a lot, we only bought that about two or three months ago. And I think our first shares were at 36. It's rallied to 72, you know, last night. So it's up 100%. And in the ETF, which Carvana is in, they would have had to sell that and they would have had to buy some like horrible, you know, US department store. Likewise with Amazon, you know, Amazon has been running hard for the last five years, it's been growing incredibly strongly, taking market share from physical retail players. Um, this ETF has been selling Amazon as it's been rising and buying kind of the bad retail companies that it's taking market share from. So it's got this like inbuilt mechanism where it's kind of constantly selling the ones winning and taking market share and buying the losing ones. There's quite a few other ETFs that you know, have like little tweaks and little things that make it interesting. So we've got an energy company and um, listed in Stockholm. It's about 10 billion US. Uh, we've held it for a long time. It's been a good performer, but basically it's doubling production at the end of this year. And on the other side of that, we, we're, hedging a, we're hedging it by selling the commodity itself. And the reason that's interesting is because the ETF actually requires, obviously you, you can't just, they don't just buy oil, they actually buy futures. Uh, and most of the time it costs money to roll that futures. So it's losing, you know, up to one, two, three percent a month just to hold it. Moments a bit less, but over the past kind of five years, that roll yield has meant it's materially underperformed the price of crude. That's helpful. The other helpful part is that, you know, we're, we own companies that actually create value. So this oil company is actually generating free cash flow every year. It's growing. It's doubling production. So to be short, every, on a day-to-day -day basis, it moves very much in line with crude. But over the long term, it's just going to compound that value creation and be materially better. So we've got about five or six of these, you know, very kind of like, I think, interesting trades where the upside compounds and is in, we're in like very favorable structural companies. Disney recently released a new streaming service. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I think Disney's really interesting. I mean, I could be asking you. I mean, you're a mother of two. So they've got – people forget how big Disney is. Disney is it's not just Cinderella. It's also ESPN. It's also Marvel, Star Wars. Simpsons. So what do you Pixel? think of this package? Pixar, 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 sorry, Pixar. Yeah, <laughs> these are great. These are like some of the best movies I've ever been, the best yeah, characters I've ever absolutely. been made. And so it's $7 a month. How does that sound to you? Well, my husband and son are both huge fans of Marvel and Star Wars. So being able to watch any of those films anytime on demand for $7 a month, US dollars, that puts a spanner in the works. We will look at what we're paying for Foxtel, what we're paying for Stan, and we will definitely reconsider everything that we're paying for to look at Disney. Yeah, I guess the interesting thing is these bundles are just such good entertainment. Mm. So the question is, can, can will people have like a Netflix and a Disney and something else and Foxtel? I mean, my view is probably yes. I mean, I think you get so much for it. I think one good show a year is enough to justify. Absolutely. You know, like something like Game of Thrones or yeah, just anything. Yeah, we just upped our Foxtel package last month. Yeah, to so include, did I. To include <laughs> Game of Thrones. <laughs> but next month we'll be reducing yeah. it back down again. <laughs> Put it in the diet. Remind me when you do it. So I don't forget. Yeah, so there's other people trying to do it. So one of our short positions is AT&T. So they, um, 
they have a huge media business, but they're going to try and do a streaming, streaming business as well. It's going to cost them a huge amount of investment. But they don't have the characters of Disney, like nowhere, nowhere mm. close. They don't have Pixar. They don't have the classics. I really think that the kind of lower tier of people that are trying to get into streaming, they're going to really struggle. Whereas something like Disney, it's, you know, they've got the characters, they make the content. It's issued Netflix that's kind of held people back and held people, kept people out of the stock, which has broadly been a huge mistake. It's a mistake of a mission is that they spend so much on content. But Disney does that already. They've got a huge back catalogue. You know, they can withdraw that back catalogue from everybody else and make it so you have yeah, to Yeah, the Disney. old Disney classics. Yeah, it just means they can basically invest more. Oh, it's, it's almost like they kind of, they can make more money out of their existing investment. When they make a movie, they can then push it out to their customers in a different way. You know, they can probably offer deals to people who pay $7 a month when they go to Disney, you know, skip lines or something. There's so many different things they can do. Um, and it means they have a direct, ongoing, subscription-based relationship with their customers. Generally, when companies have done that, it's kind of, it's probably like a business trend of the last few years. Uh, if you look at Microsoft, they've turned Office into a subscription. Adobe has turned all of their software like Photoshop into subscription. You basically take things that used to be one-offs and then you turn it into something that's monthly. Everybody, it's a predictable revenue stream. And if it's a high-quality product, people know that with lock-in effects, people know that you're going to continue doing it. You can pay a lot for that. All those equity risks that revolve around the fact that you might not have revenue next month, you know, don't really apply in the same way if you've got people on subscription. You know, it's just very, very high-quality revenue and earnings. So that's $7 a month times by, let's say they hit, it could be anything, you know, 50, 100, 200 million. That just drops straight down to their bottom line. You know, it could be just doing back of envelope, but could increase their EBITDA by 50%. And by that, I mean like the EBITDA on the existing kind of capital expenditure, the existing kind of product base that they've already got could be 50% higher just with a moderate amount of success in the streaming business. The stock's rallied a lot, still trading cheaply. You know, it's like 13 times EBITDA or something. I mean, it's not, it's not deep value, but it's roughly in line with the market. And, and considering the kind of quality of the franchise, all those brands, ESPN, which is insanely valued in its own right, it's, it's astounding that there is an additional brand value. And I think that'll actually happen going forward. You know, the stock will probably continue to rally. And when everybody's looking for defensive positions and they want to sell their kind of cyclicals, they'll be looking at companies like Disney and their kind of ongoing revenue stream. It's just a very interesting company at the moment. It's not very often that you see companies that go through such huge transformations. I think they've actually got it right. Fingers crossed. Kavana reported its results this morning. How did it go? Well, obviously, it was quite an important result for us. I mean, obviously, it's just a quarterly, so we weren't going to, we didn't adjust our position before. In almost every case, we won't adjust it after. But that's like your one quarterly, you know, snap point view of how things are going. Uh, It was really good. I mean, people thought that their growth would slow down below 100% came in 110% year on year. Their gross profit per car they sell increased quite substantially as well. And this is really something that we're looking at quite closely because it's all good, well and good to you know, grow over 100%. I mean, there's basically nobody else that's growing that fast organically um, of their size, apart from maybe Afterpay, which is another portfolio company. <laughs> but you know, it's like, are their margins going in the right way? Will they reach a point where they're insanely profitable? At the moment, every quarter, they're basically ticking up. You know, the costs are going down per unit and their margins are going up. So it's very encouraging they can increase, they can effectively double in size and have such good operating leverage as well. Yeah, it's a really interesting company. And I just think it's, you know, it's just getting started. Online retail is bigger than any other. So cars are the biggest part of any retail. You know, the bigger than electronics, the bigger than jewelry, the bigger than makeup. It is the biggest sector and it's totally untouched by online, you know, the online revolution that's hit everywhere else. 
And it's untouched because it's so difficult. And the fact that these people have pulled it off in a way that people like, you know, and people are getting really excited to use them and to buy cars from them suggests that, you know, they could really take, you know, significant market share. So the biggest, the biggest competitor has 1.8%, highly fragmented market. You know, if they get to 2%, the shares are worth, you know, on an EBITDA, traditional value base, at least twice what they are now. But, you know, if they're, given the traction they're getting and how fast they're growing in mature markets that already exist, you know, there's no reason to think they'll stop there. So really things a long-term growth opportunity in that. Um, and we just, you know, it's great that the sell-off last year gave us an opportunity to buy it at one times forward sales. I mean, that's phenomenal considering that if you want to pay up for a good SaaS company, you're often paying 15 or 20 times sales. I really think it's probably the most exciting opportunity we've seen in a while. And you probably get one of these a year, I think, you know, where everything lines up, the profitability, you know, the growth. Yeah, when we see an opportunity that's, you know, really, really good for valuation, growth, profitability sense, we'll definitely go for it, make it part of our portfolio. What I found really interesting about Kavana was the, um, the 16 auto vending machines. How are they going? I yeah, guess. I mean, everyone seems to love them. Yeah. I mean, we, had, we, had, we spoke with management and we're kind of asking, and we, we always, management always said that it's a marketing thing. You know, it's, they put them on in strategic locations, so very busy freeways. You know, these things are kind of seven, eight, nine stories high with cars, completely see-through, Carvana logo. The way they work is you can just rock up and then just, you know, your car comes down for you, step into it and drive away. Uh, if you don't like it for whatever reason, you can just give it back seven days later. But I think everyone just drives these things. Well, what on earth is that? You know, it's amazing. So apparently they, they measure the increase in traffic they get when they put one in and it pays itself off like, extremely rapidly. Okay. Um, they're also standalone profitable on their own. On an IRR basis, so the economics like work really well, but it's kind of exactly what you'd expect from a common sense perspective. They're very striking. It just shows like a good bit of innovation. It's very helpful to have kind of a marketing edge as well. And I guess it's, this is going to be a classic innovation story because there's so many existing car dealerships, some of which are relatively profitable. A lot of them are shifting into this space. They're trying to copy what Carvana is doing. But my personal opinion is that they're just not going to be able to do it as well. Because they still have a model where you have to go into a deal. It's still trying, the whole online presence is designed to funnel people into a dealership to test drive. And then once you're in the dealership and you're test driving, the model is based around incentivizing the salesman to kind of flog the car to them. So Carvana takes out the physical premise um, and also takes out the kind of commission required for the salesperson. And so they don't have any incentives to kind of like try and have some kind of omni-channel approach. So CarMax is their biggest competitor and they're trying to do it that way. But if Carmax was serious, they should really just spin out a business and just do it that way. Cut out the dealers, cut out their existing branch network. And it's exactly the sort of thing that's almost impossible for a company to do. I mean, you'd have to completely change the strategic direction. You would annoy and immediately compete and cannibalize your existing stakeholders, you know, the people that actually work for the company, the people that get commission from buying and selling cars. I really think Carvana is the only people in a position to do it. It's a very interesting company. Uh, should we leave it at that? Yeah, I think so. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a pleasure chatting to you in sunny Sydney. <laughs> Thank you. It's been good to have a chat. And that wraps up our eighth episode. If you enjoyed the discussion, please feel free to share it with your friends. You can find more information on us at www.frazzascapitalpartners.com. I'm Michael Frazzas, and I hope you have a fantastic week.